Hi, welcome to Him We Proclaim with John Fonville. We're continuing with our Titus series called Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness. Since Christianity is a life of faith, it means that there needs to be a source of power to live the Christian life, right? Well, that power comes from God through Christ, and we call it grace. In this message, we're going to learn that grace not only saves us by breaking the bondage we have to sin, but it also equips us, so to speak, to reject the desire to live in ungodliness. Here's Pastor John with part one of a message called, The Grace of God Trains Us with Power to Reject Worldliness. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 through 14. The whole chapter of Titus is about church membership and what it looks like to be a member in a church, to be a part of the body of Christ, a Christian. And so Paul's telling us the purposes for why this grace of God has appeared. So now last week, what we saw about this is that Paul's opponents are guilty of what's called license. License is like legalism in that it is a destructive error and it's a threat to the gospel and a threat to the church. At the core of the false teacher's teaching, chapter 1, verse 16, was they were separating their salvation or their professed salvation, which they did not have, but they were separating their knowledge of God from subsequent obedience in their life. Chapter 1, verse 11 says that they were driven by greed, that the false teacher's character and conduct epitomized the worst of the Cretan cultural vices of Paul's day. That's chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. So both their teaching, which was corrupt, and their character, which was corrupt, was exercising a negative, destructive influence on the Cretan households. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul uses a powerful verb. He says that they were overturning whole households. And so what was happening is that some of these tutors that were in first century who would come into homes to teach people, they were coming into these homes with this false gospel, with ungodly character, and they were beginning to exercise an influence on these young church members, these young believers. And so these young believers were beginning to embrace a licentious and godly indulgent lifestyle that looked just like the Cretan culture in which they lived. And so part of Titus's pastoral duty that Paul assigns to him in Crete is to help church members break away from living a licentious, indulgent lifestyle and begin to live in a way that accords with sound doctrine, chapter 2, verse 1. Sound doctrine being the gospel, which accords with godliness, chapter 1, verse 1. So Paul, in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, regardless of age, regardless of gender, and regardless of legal social status, that's slaves, he calls all the members in the church to pursue godliness in their ordinary daily routines of life. And so the question that we're looking at is, how is it possible to live this kind of a godly life in the midst of an ungodly culture? How does Paul combat the destructive error of license in the church and bring right order, right behavior, right order to the church? And so Paul gives us the answer in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
This forms the heart of the letter, along with chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, which we'll come to. But Paul understood this and how to combat license and how to drive believers to godliness. He understood that the proper preaching of Christ, the grace of God, who Jesus is the grace of God, that the proper preaching of Christ is always the best remedy for combating license in the church. This is what brings life and order to the church. And so, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, Paul highlights four saving actions of the grace of God. Jesus, four saving actions of God's grace that educates believers to live godly lives in their ordinary daily routines of life. So look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first saving action is simply, verse 11, the grace of God saves. The grace of God saves. Paul personifies grace as the believer's savior. So it's really the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation is simply a shorthand way of saying that Jesus appeared bringing saving power. When he in his first coming appeared, the epiphany, which is where this word epiphany comes from, he appeared, Paul says Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection appeared with saving power. And this saving power in this context is to bring salvation to free people from bondage and power to sin. Why? Because you, if you're going to pursue a godly life, you have to be free to do it. And this is what Jesus has brought to us. The grace of God, Stephen Charnock says, the grace that has appeared presents us with the strongest motives to obedience. This is what the gospel does. This was its purpose. True gospel faith, we saw, makes you pray to God like David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a resolute spirit, one that within me, one that will continually want to pursue the things that you want me to pursue and to stay away from what you don't want me to pursue. And so understanding the purpose and scope of salvation last week we saw as liberation from the power and bondage of sin, it destroys any notion of license. A person cannot make an excuse to say, well, God left me out because all members of the church are addressed. And the very purpose of Christ appearing, this grace appearing, is to bring salvation from the power of sin, which enables us to pursue a godly life. Now, Paul's going to elaborate on this salvation that brings us this freedom of sin and teaches us to pursue godliness. Here's the second saving action of God's grace. Look at verses 12 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, and this is what the grace of God now is doing, training us, literally educating us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So the second action of God's grace that has appeared is this, is simply the grace of God educates. The grace of God saves, the grace of God educates. Paul, in verse 11, personifies grace as the believer's Savior. Now, in verses 12 through 13, he's going to personify the grace of God as the believer's educator, as the believer's teacher. And this teacher guides believers into a wholly new way of life. And so Christ is a teacher, the believer is the student, and the school is grace. So what you have here is the believer in Christ's school of grace who is educating you in the subject of godliness, and that is always his lesson. God's grace has appeared, Paul says, to begin a process of education in the subject of godliness. The whole of God's saving action in Christ that appeared, his life, death, burial, birth, resurrection, all of that, that grace that has appeared, that is the greatest teacher on the subject of godliness. So what is the content or the curriculum of this educative process? What do believers get instructed in by Christ in his school of grace? You see, because education is really salvation. Paul is just personifying it as education, Christ as a teacher. He's telling you how the past act of Jesus currently saves you. So what is it? What is this content? What is the curriculum? Look at this. Paul is going to give us three fundamental lessons that believers are taught by the grace of God. And here's the first lesson. Look at verse 12. The grace of God educates the believer to renounce an ungodly life. The verb renounce means to refuse to pay any attention to, to disregard. It means really to say no to, to deny, to give up. The emphasis includes but is more than just a one-time decisive break with the past in conversion. When you first are brought to life by the Holy Spirit, you say for the first time in your life, no to your whole past and you walk away from it. But it involves more than that in this context. It's more than just this one-time decisive break. God's grace teaches the believer to say no to ungodly living over and over and over again. The grace of God educates the believer to a continual life of repentance. In 1517, Martin Luther took his hammer and he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And the first theses in his statement addressed the matter of repentance. And this is what he said. He says, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so negatively in this passage, Paul teaches us that the grace of God as our instructor is educating us to say no to two vices all the time. And the two vices he mentions here is ungodliness and worldly passion. So let's look at this. He says, look, 
the grace of God has appeared training or educating us to renounce, to say no to, to repent from ungodliness. Ungodliness is the opposite of godliness. And as you know in our study of the book of Titus, godliness is a key theme in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, there's no doubt when Paul starts out as to what is paramount in his mind as he's penning this letter to the, the Cretan believers. He says that he is giving them the knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel, which accords with godliness. The mark the true gospel is that it always leads and produces godliness. And so he is already anticipating the problems that are affecting the churches by these false teachers by bringing a false gospel which produces ungodliness. And so Paul says that the gospel is the educating force behind a godly life. Godliness is the goal. And to get there, you have to renounce ungodliness all the time. This is what the grace of God teaches us. Godliness, what is it? It is God-centeredness. It is reverence for and love of God. Older theologians called it piety. You might have heard of a pious person. A pious person is a person who has reverence joined with love of God. They live their life in a God-centered fashion. So ungodliness is the impiety. It is the opposite of piety. Ungodliness, Paul says, as the grace of God teaches us to deny desires that have a lack of reverence for and love of God, both in our thought and our behavior. Ungodliness in this context especially refers to the sin of idolatry, which is born from disbelief in God. Paul has no doubt in mind here the false teachers who are corrupting the Cretan households because back in chapter 1, verse 16, which we looked at, Paul describes the false teachers as detestable. And that indicates, that word detestable indicates idolatry. So what is idolatry? What is the renouncing of idolatry in our life? Idolatry is reverencing, loving, or trusting in any person or thing rather than reverencing, loving, and trusting in God alone, which is what the first commandment requires of us. These false teachers, Paul says back in chapter 1, were devoted to loving and trusting in man-made rules and regulations, commandments of men. They were trusting in ascetic purification rituals for purity, salvation before God. They were not trusting in Christ alone. And so John Calvin says that they were guilty of what's called irreligious contempt of God. And what happens is ungodliness, irreligious contempt of God, lack of reverence for God, fear of God, love for God, honoring God, that ungodliness reigns in all people until they come to a saving knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. And so these false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God. But Paul says they deny God by their godless, licentious manner of life. And so Paul states that the grace of God teaches believers 
to renounce ungodliness over and over again. We as believers are being driven in our heart by grace to continually turn away from godlessness. Second, Paul states that the grace of God teaches believers to renounce the passions of the flesh that accompany a godless heart. Look what he says. He says that it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Worldly passions are simply equivalent to the desires of the flesh, which give rise to ungodly behavior. What is it in this context? Let me give you some examples from chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Paul's referring back to the Cretan cultural vices of which were beginning to come into the church in Crete. So these worldly passions were a lack of self-control, a lack of personal restraint. It was selfishness, indulgent licentious behavior, a lack of marital fidelity by young women to their husbands, drunkenness, gluttony, lying, slander, gossip, deception, irreverent behavior, neglect of domestic home life, greed, thievery, and insubordination. These are worldly passions. These are the things that were coming into the Cretan churches, and Paul was addressing them and seeking to get that out of them and to put godliness into them. And so the worldly passions, these desires of the flesh, characterize, Paul says, the fallen world in this present age. The instruction of grace is antithetical to all the Cretan cultural vices, and it is antithetical to all American cultural vices. Grace instructs us, it teaches us over and over, because what a good teacher does is repeats over and over and over till you get it. Grace instructs the believer to continually turn away from a godless way of life that is born from these fallen fleshly desires of the heart. Now, it is important to understand that ungodliness and worldly passions are not yet dead in the believer. These two vices continually war against us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says, abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against your soul. Now, this raises an important observation that we, we, we want to discuss here for a minute because it's very important. This passage in no way hints at the doctrine of perfection. It's not there. It does not imply that believers, through the instruction of grace, will come into some higher state of victorious Christian living where you begin to now enjoy God's presence 24-7, 365, and live without sin and struggle in your life. It's not what it's teaching. God's educating grace does not offer a one-time lesson, a once-and-for-all deliverance from sin. Instead, Paul teaches us that Christ's past appearance, his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, the grace of God, that begins a present process of educating us by grace that continually teaches us over and over and over in the subject of godliness. 
This educating process that we all go through will be characterized by failure, tension, warfare, and struggle, not perfection and not a victorious Christian life. There was only one victorious man who has ever lived, and his name is the grace of God, Jesus Christ. Everybody else is not that. Every believer who is instructed by Christ in his school of grace will possess and experience two opposing powerful desires, namely the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, of justified believers, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So grace continually trains and educates us in the same lesson over and over and over, namely, deny these passions, deny this ungodliness, fight against it, say no to them, deny it, turn it over, give it up, denounce it, renounce it. This is what the gospel is teaching us. The Christian who is continually taught by grace spends his life, J.I. Packer says, reaching after perfection, but finds that his reach always exceeds his grasp. Now, the struggle that we experience does not mean that believers never achieve any measure of godliness. Because Paul's just stated in verse 11 that Christ appeared for the very purpose of saving us from the power of sin, freeing us, liberating us from bondage to sin so that we can begin to live a godly life. So what is Paul doing? He is not setting forth a view of the Christian life as constant, total defeat. He is not setting forth a view of the Christian life as constant, continual, total victory. He is setting forth a view of the Christian life as continual moral instruction and progress and struggle and victory in godliness. That's what he's showing us. Now, there's another observation we want to make before we move on, and that has to do with repentance. Repentance, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. Too often in the church, repentance is not grounded in grace. And because of that, what happens is repentance, particularly because of revivalist traditions, is made to sound, repentance is made to sound like improvement of life or a ceasing of a particular sin that you struggle with. That's not repentance. All the emphasis in this view of repentance is placed on the work of the believer to be sorry or contrite enough. A believer in this, in this tradition repents when he or she really means it this time and shows that he or she really means it because he or she has actually ceased and desisted of any recurrence of a particular sinful behavior that's been repented of. Repentance, listen carefully, is not our vows, our sorrow, our sincerity. It is not our commitments. It is not our resolutions to do better. It is not our promises to never do something again. It is not going to summer camp and nailing a piece of a paper with a commitment on it to a cross at the top of a hill that you're supposed to climb up. 
It is not going forward in a public worship service to make a, quote, public rededication the way I grew up with. What does that even mean? That is senseless. It's not even in Scripture. I grew up with it week after week after week. Make a public rededication. We had 50 rededications. What is that? It's not repentance. Repentance does not lead us back to ourselves. Repentance does not lead us to the rebellion of license. Repentance does not lead us to the bondage of legalism. It does not lead us to moralism. It does not lead us to self-help religion. Try harder next time. It's not repentance. That's not repentance grounded in the grace of God that is educating you to repent. Repentance is a grace given by the Holy Spirit that leads me from my sin to Christ forward every time. It teaches me, renounce this ungodliness and go to Jesus. It is looking backward and forgetting and renouncing my sin and repentance is always moving forward to Jesus. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called The Grace of God Trains Us with the Power to Reject Worldliness, Part 1. More from the series Grace, the Wellspring of All Godliness, coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, You can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.